The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. And I want to read the same scripture that we started with the last time that we spoke on this subject. And uh, that's been quite a while now. It's been back at the end of December, about four weeks ago. And there really isn't a better place that we can go to read about the church than to this particular epistle. It is widely known as the epistle of the church. Now, our scripture reading begins at verse number 14 in chapter 3. The Apostle Paul says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly, or exceeding abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Our subject this evening is the perpetuity of the church, which we find stated as a, con- as a concept here in verse number 21, where Paul says, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages. There's our statement of perpetuity. Throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Now there has been, there is, and there will be a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the world until Christ comes again. And that is essentially the meaning of perpetuity. I like the way that uh, Paul states the importance of the Lord's church in this particular passage because he says here that God has given us a church to strengthen us. He's given us a church in order that we might be grounded in the faith. He gave us a church that we might know the love of God and that we might have the fullness of God. And our association with the Lord's church is the best place that we accomplish this because the scripture says that Christ receives glory through his church. And so we can understand why that he would give us a church and that he would be sure to keep it alive. It does have many, many important purposes in the life of a Christian. So as you can see, or uh, at least I hope that you can understand this, that perpetuity is actually the very first premise that we have to establish before we look into the history of the church. Uh, The right history cannot be one that's been filled with gaps. It can't be a history of a corrupt church. It can't be the history of a missing church or a a periodically disappearing church, nor of a reformed church or of a restored church. None of those would actually be a perpetual church that's always held to the doctrines of Christ. Now, I think we can understand that very easily, that obviously a corrupt church could not have the doctrines of Christ. A missing church could not have those doctrines. 
A reformed church is the correction of a corrupt church, so that doesn't count. And a restored church is a recipe for a, or a solution maybe I should say, for a missing church. So none of those could actually be what Paul talks about here in Ephesians 3.21. So uh, those can't be the true church if Paul is right about what he says in that particular verse. And so that leaves us then with a search for this true church... And it can be found because it does exist. It always has existed since the time of Christ. It is a perpetual church. Now, I'd like to back up just a little bit over some of the material that we talked about last month. I said that's been a long time, four weeks ago. And, and uh, I'm just going to give you a brief overview uh, to begin the message of things we talked about then. So if you weren't here for that, there are some missing parts, but hopefully you'll be able to uh, catch up with us. Now, first of all, we discuss the definition of perpetuity. And that's a word that you will find in the dictionary. It means the quality or the state of being perpetual. It means continuing without interruption. And when we take that definition and we transpose it into the doctrine of the church, this is what it means to us. That from the time Jesus established the church until the present time, There have always been believers and churches that held to essential New Testament truth. Now that's the basis for our history. And when we find a church that matches that definition, then we found the same type of church that Jesus began. So it's our contention that there have been churches like the Berean Baptist Church that have existed in all periods of time since that first century when Christ founded the church. And I'm aware that there are many people who think that that's a very brazen statement. They don't believe that it's true, or they don't think that it's even possible that we could ever make a statement like that. And I've even known some people who think that, well, that's just the height of arrogance to to say that a church like yours has existed all the way back to the time of Christ and they take a statement like that and they twist it to say that, that what we mean by that is, is that we believe that we are the only people that, have, that are saved. That nobody else can go to heaven unless they believe exactly like the Berean Baptist Church believes. Now, now part of that's true because there is no person going to heaven unless they believe exactly what we teach on the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ that we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone, without our works. It's by the grace of God that we're saved. Anybody who confesses that, repents of their sin, trusts in Christ, then certainly we do believe that they're going to heaven. So we've never said anything like this, that we believe that we are the only people that are going to be in heaven. And if people really understood what the church actually is, they wouldn't be afraid of this statement because the truth of the matter is that the church and salvation are two different things. Now, I don't have time to go back to our very first lesson on the nature of the church. That was way back last summer. I don't have time to do that. But this important statement does need to be very clear that you can be in the kingdom of God without being in the church of God, but you cannot be in the church of God without being in the kingdom of God. Now, going back to uh, my statement, it's a very necessary belief. I mean, we, we, we are a true church, and we hold to the same New Testament doctrines that Jesus and the apostles did. And if we aren't a true church, the only thing that we can be is a false church. 
And it's as simple as that. If the New Testament says that there is a true church in the world, then we want to be that true church. And if we're not that church, we defy God and we defy Jesus Christ who is the founder of his church. And that's just very basic and simple. It's not an arrogant claim. It's a necessary claim. Or else we're just wasting our time because a corrupt church and restored churches and reformed churches and disappearing churches have appeared all throughout history. And so what we need to do is look to find proof of this perpetually correct church, one that has never fully apostatized from the faith and still holds on to Christ's doctrines. So the second thing that we looked at were the proofs of perpetuity. And we find those proofs along some very important lines, the first of which is the proof of Christ's promise. That is, the head of the church, the founder of the church, promised that it would be here, and he said that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's Matthew 16, 18, and that's very clear. Also, in the commission that Christ gave in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, that's also clear that Christ would have a perpetual church. Now, if Christ is trustworthy about this and the gates of hell have not prevailed against his church, then we know that we have one that is held to the essential New Testament doctrines that make it a true church. Now, the second thing that we discussed was the proof of Scripture's teachings. In our text here in Ephesians 3.21, that is proof of a perpetual church. Going on further into Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27, uh, those verses are proof. The two passages that I just mentioned in Matthew 16, 18, Matthew 16, 18, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and many other like scriptures that mention the same types of things that Christ would be with his church. These are all proofs from the word of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that there would be a true church in the world. One of the places that I didn't quote from last time is from John chapter 17. Uh, Before Jesus left this world, he prayed an intercessory prayer for his people. And that's what Christ is. He is the great high priest of his people. Now, folks, I talked about that a little bit this morning, about the pontiff maxim. The pontiff maxim is not a man. The pontiff maxim is Jesus Christ. That word means high priest, and the high priest is Jesus Christ. And what Jesus prayed for uh, in that 17th chapter, his, his great prayer that he prayed just before he was crucified, he prayed that the people, that first of all, that the apostles, those who had been given the charge of, of teaching his doctrines, that they would be kept safe that God would take care of them. Now, there he's, of course, talking about their souls would be kept safe. But he also prayed for something else. He prayed for those that would be won through their witness. And so the safety of believers is not only in the fact that they have their salvation, but also in the promise that Christ says they will persevere. And so it is these people that the apostles won through their witness, the ones who would be future believers, the ones that are living in the world, in fact, today still, these future believers are the ones who would perpetuate the Lord's church. And then we looked at a third proof. And the third proof is the proof of history's witness. That history does have a record of churches that never apostatized. And we're talking about 
churches that never morphed into something else. They never had to be reformed. They never had to be restored. Now, all of that was going on around these true churches uh, during the centuries, but this is the pure stream that flowed out of that original fountain of Jesus Christ when he began his church with his apostles. The, the, this is the church that held on faithfully to the doctrines of Christ. And so there always has been a true gospel and a true church that holds on to those essential qualifying doctrines that make it a true church. Now, history shows that. And, of course, that's the history that we're headed for. That's what we want to talk about. Uh, history is the main part of our study. But before we get to that, we do have some other issues concerning perpetuity that we need to deal with. So I want to talk a little bit more about those. Uh, how is it that um, these churches maintained their link to Christ throughout the centuries? How did that happen? Now, first of all, we're going to look at the importance of perpetuity, or number three on your listening sheet, actually, the importance of perpetuity. And I don't want to overstate the obvious here, but the object or the subject of this is so important to us because we do want to make sure that we are in this pure stream that has the doctrines of Christ. So we want to make sure that our church is a New Testament church, which in fact is a claim that's made by just about everybody who has a cross on their building and has a sign that says church on it. I mean, you're not going to find too many people that say, we are not the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there are some that make no claim, and they don't really care about a connection. But most of us would agree with this, that what we want to do is we want to be sure that we do have the authentic teachings of Christ. We want to be a good church, just like the good churches that you find in the New Testament. And it might be good for me to add at this place that we're not looking for a perfect church because we're not going to find one. All churches are made up of imperfect humans, and none of us is going to be perfect until we receive that glorified body that we get when we're resurrected to be with Jesus Christ. So we're not looking for a, a perfect church. So what does that mean? Well, it means that as we look at the church through the history, we're going to find variations. We're going to find variations of doctrine, and we're going to find some... Uh, mistakes in judgment. Now, the New Testament churches that we read about in our Bible, they were not perfect churches. And that's why you find the Apostle Paul and others that wrote to these churches and trying to correct them and in, in the errors that they had gone into. Now, for instance, as we look in the book of Revelation, uh, contained there are seven letters to seven churches, and there was only one of those churches that escaped a scathing rebuke from the Lord. Now, if that's the case, if that is the case, then there will be churches, all of them in some sort of doctrinal error, but there's a breaking point. There's a line that can't be crossed. I mean, when you stray away too far from the essential core doctrines of the faith, when a single church crosses that line, then what was once a true church can become a false church. Now, to give you an example of that, Again, in Revelation chapter 2, the first church that Jesus spoke to was the church that's the subject of this text. That is the Ephesian church. And when Paul established that church, it must have been, a, it must have been an outstanding church. 
mean, there was a church that Paul gave some of the hardest doctrines that we have to deal with. He taught the Ephesian church the doctrine of election. He taught them about predestination. He taught them about total depravity and about the total inability of man. And those people must have understood that. Uh, Paul gave them those very difficult doctrines and they must have understood it because we don't find a whole lot of questions about what he taught them. But when we come to the book of Revelation, that's a time about 30 years after Paul had begun the Ephesian church and those preceding centuries had been very difficult on it because we come to Revelation 2 verse number 5 and Jesus speaks to this church and he says, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent. Now, what Jesus meant when he said that he would remove the candlestick out of its place, he's very simply telling them that unless you correct your doctrine, unless you come back to what you've been taught, then you will be removed from being one of my true churches. The light will go out of your church. And folks, that can happen to any individual church. It can happen to this church Now, we, we know there are many churches that are around us that do not have the true light. And so what we don't want to do, we don't want to spin our wheels being connected to that kind of a church. And why wouldn't we? It's because the purpose of the church is to give glory to Christ. And Christ can't be glorified where there is no truth. And this is why we are so concerned about whether we do actually have the truth that we find in the New Testament. In order for Christ to be glorified, the truth must be taught. And so... He promised that there would be a church in the world, and so we know that truth is being taught by that true church. But that, that, that doesn't seem to concern too many Christians, if in fact they are Christians, because you'll find this to be true. There are very few people that actually take the time and have the concern to find out if the church that they attend is doctrinally correct and historically correct. Now doctrine, that, that's the first thing that we have to look at. History can be bad history, and we'll see that as we go through this study. Uh, investigation of the matter then is very important, and it will lead you down to surprising, some surprising paths, some paths that churches would rather remain hidden. So let's talk about that for a minute. And this is, becomes a very difficult subject because there are so many churches that are in the world, and we all don't believe the same things. That tells you very very simply, somebody's wrong here. If we're not teaching the same thing, and there's a true church in the world, somebody is wrong. Now, talking about history and investigation and all of that, last time we noted this, that by far, most people believe that the Roman Catholic Church was the first church, and that at one time, it was a true church. Now, there are over one billion Catholics in the world today that still believe that it's a true church and you have millions of Protestants who believe that it was once a true church or else they wouldn't call themselves Protestants. But you go back into the history and, and you strip away all of the traditions that you find in Roman Catholicism and all the things that they base their opinions upon and all the things that they say about their origin. One of the things that you'll find is that there is no proof that Peter, who they claimed to be the first pope, had ever actually been in Rome. 
There is no historical proof of that, that Peter was ever at Rome. And then besides all the other perverted doctrine that is there, doctrines that Peter uh, nor any of the other apostles would agree with, you'd still have that one glaring fact that as far as we know, Peter was never at Rome. Now, Catholicism is supposed to be, as people think, the true trunk of perpetuity. But for that to be true, it had to start with Christ and with the doctrines of Christ. So that means that the New Testament has to be the pattern for the church and not tradition. The New Testament is the scripture. The New Testament contains the the blueprint, you might say. The New Testament contains the doctrines that are given to the true New Testament church. But as we go back into history and we look at the beginnings of the Roman Catholic Church, where did it come from? Do we find its doctrines in the New Testament? Well, in a sense we do. Uh, We go back to the beginning and there is the apostasy of a group that's called the Gnostics. And in the letter of 1 John, the chief opponents that John is forcefully denouncing in that particular letter is the Gnostics. They're people that believed in mysticism. They had a false view of the deity of Christ. They had paganism of Greeks and Romans that were mixed into Christian ideals. They were never Christians in any sense of the word. Now, they said that they believed in Christ, but they didn't believe in the Christ of the Bible. So what Catholicism started with was pulling some beliefs out of paganism of the heathens and mixing those beliefs with the rituals of Judaism. And that's why today they have this separate unbiblical priesthood. It's why you find mysticism in Catholicism. It's why you find rituals galore such as burning of incense and lighting of candles for the dead. They still have a sacrificial system. That's the mass that they practice every week. And so what you actually see there are remnant forms of Judaism and paganism. Now, the paganism of Roman Catholicism is really uh, an, an interesting study because it actually predates Christianity. It goes all the way back into the Old Testament to the time of Nimrod. Now, world history shows that there are mythologies of ancient cultures that are fairly consistent as you go through, uh, through history all the way up to the time of Christ. In those mythologies, you find common gods and goddesses. Now, I don't know how many of you have studied this, but you probably had this in history when you were in school. I mean, you saw the mythologies of the, of the uh, Scandinavians and mythology of uh, the Greeks and the Romans, of course. And going further back than that, well, you can go all the way back to the Canaanites and you find the mythologies that they had and the Babylonians and the Assyrians and so on. And what you find there is a very similar pattern that develops, that they worship the same gods. Throughout all of that time, they're worshiping the same gods and the only thing that they did is just switch the names up. Now, especially if you look at Roman and Greek mythology, you, you know, you have Zeus and Jupiter. Those correspond to one another. You have uh, Mars and Hermes. Those correspond to one another and, and various ones that you could mention. And so they're essentially worshiping the same gods, and all they do is they change the names. So in the 4th century, when Constantine supposedly converted to Christianity, he had a whole empire that was filled up with these worshipers of these pagan gods. Now folks, if Catholicism is anything, it's pragmatic and it's accommodating. And so what Constantine did in order 
for power was to cement all of that together and to mix together the paganism that existed in the empire to some ideals of Christianity. And so you end up with a fake Christianity that's wedded with paganism for power and thus you have the Roman Catholic Church is born. And so you have Gnosticism and false Christianity and paganism and Judaism that are all mixed up and all of that stirred together and as Aaron said, out came this golden calf and the golden calf is the foul stench of Catholicism. The Roman Catholic Church was built on falsehoods. It's never had the essentials of a true New Testament church. And it's important for you to know that because when you look at church history, almost everybody universally think that the church runs through Catholicism. Let me ask you something. If I say to you that I I, I want to build a piano, can can you provide me with the blueprints for a piano? And you hand me the blueprints to a doghouse, what am I going to build? Well, I'm going to build a doghouse. Now, it it might have some wood in it, and it might have some black paint on it, and it might have a lid or a door like this piano has a lid, but when I build it, it won't be a piano. It'll be a doghouse. Now, what if somebody comes along and says, you know something, I'd like to have a doghouse like yours, but I think that I can make some improvements on your doghouse. And so he starts, or rather a piano, he says, I want to have a piano like yours. I I can make improvements on your piano. And so he starts with the blueprints for the doghouse. Now what's he going to build? Will he build a piano? No, he'll build a better doghouse. And that's essentially what Protestantism is. That's what the Protestant Reformation did. Now as much as I respect the Reformers, and we believe many of the doctrines that Reformers taught... I have a great deal of respect for Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and and all of those men and Knox and all of those that that had a part in the the, uh, Protestant Reformation. Yet the Protestant Reformation, all it was doing was correcting or making better the doghouse. It's not a piano. It's still a doghouse. So you see that this is important. You have to get the pattern right. And the blueprint for the church is not found in the traditions that are built upon men, but that pattern is found in the New Testament itself. And so we always have to go back and look at the New Testament and see what does the New Testament say about all of these doctrines. And I care little about what men have said and all the things that people have added to it. We must use the New Testament because that's the true pattern for the church. Well, going a little bit further, how was the church perpetuated from century to century? Well, fourthly, we want to look at the theories of perpetuity. And there are basically four ways that are proposed as the means by which the church has continued since the time of Christ. Now, the first of those theories is apostolic succession. And that means that the authority of the church has been passed down through the centuries by church office. And so that would be through the succession of bishops. Roman Catholics, Greek Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, all of, all of anything that comes under the heading of Catholicism, they all believe that that's the way the church is perpetuated, through an apostolic succession. Now most of you would recognize it this way, that the succession is in the line of the popes. And we've seen quite a few popes in the past few years, And it's always remarkable to me 
how there's always a debate when a new pope comes on the scene that everybody wants to know what direction is the pope going to take the church. And that's amazing to me because you have a pope who's supposed to be infallible on the matters of the church and if he is, how could there possibly be more than one direction for the church? I mean, how can you take one infallible pope who corrects the actions of another infallible pope? And then what about all the popes that you have in history that are murderers and thieves and liars? And that's a matter of public or historical record as well. And then how about the last one that the Roman Catholics had before this, this one that is here now, who resigned under the corruption and cover-up of pedophile priests? How does the Pope transmit the glorious church of Christ through unholy, blasphemous hands? That's an impossibility. And yet that's what they propose. Peter is supposed to be the first Pope, and through the ordination of the succeeding Popes, the keys of the kingdom are passed down. But Rome has no basis to claim perpetuity. Ancient paganism and Gnosticism and Judaism and mysticism and ungodly men cannot be a true church, much less could they ever perpetuate one. Now the second idea or theory about uh, church succession is that of ecclesiastical succession. That perpetuity comes through ecclesiastical succession. And this one actually gets a little bit more complicated because ecclesiastical succession can take on a few different forms. One of those is what is called landmarkism. And landmarkism proposes that there is a succession of churches and baptism that can be traced from one church to another. In other words, this church exists here because there was a church that this church came out of, and that church came out of another church, and that church came out of another church, out of another church, out of another church, and so on until you come all the way back to the time of Jesus Christ. So... The landmarkist believes that there is an organic connection between all of these churches. And to be fair about that definition, uh, though that's called landmarkism today, that's not actually the old landmarkism that was first proposed, but rather that's what's called neo-landmarkism. Now, old landmarkism says that uh, there is not or doesn't claim an organic connection between the churches, but it does maintain that there have always been people that have believed, for instance, like Baptists in every age since Christ. Now, what Baptists believe is that baptism is essential to church constitution, and so there always has to be a true baptism. Now, what we may not be able to do is to link two churches in separate centuries by that chain link succession or by that particular baptism, but we do believe that we have the same baptism that was instituted in the New Testament with John the Baptist. Now, that's the way that Baptist succession was viewed by Spurgeon, and that's pretty much the way that we've looked at it thus far in this study, that there have been true churches that have been in existence all the way back to the time of Christ, and they've taught the same doctrines, they practice the same baptism. And the baptism that we have is the baptism of the New Testament, and churches are always begun by baptized members. So wherever you have baptized people, that is, people who have been truly baptized, then you have the makings or the possibilities of having a new church that can begin. You, you must start it with baptized members. Now, today, though, with, with all the many Baptist churches that there are, 
the way that we would want to start a Baptist church because there are so many in the United States and there are so many baptized believers. There's really not a reason for us to start a new Baptist church without that church coming out of an already existing one. That's the very reason why that when we send out missionaries that we that whatever missionaries that we decide to support we want to know what is your sending church what church did you come out of and by the authority of that church they go out and they start new churches now we may not be able to say well in every instance in every century since the time of Christ that it's exactly the way that was been has been done but there's no reason why we couldn't do it that way today that that's the best method to use. But to go this far to say that there's this chain link succession that you can trace one church from another church to another church to another church all the way back to the time of Christ, that's more than history can actually bear. And if you believe that, I'm not going to have a whole lot of trouble with you, but I will say that you have to accept that by faith because the record itself does not exist. Now, thirdly, is what is called denominational succession. Now, the last time we talked a little bit about denominationalism, uh, denominationalists believe that there are many branches of the church. Some of those branches are Baptist, and some are Methodist, and some are Presbyterians, and so on, so that the church is actually perpetuated by the denomination. Now, some erroneously think that that's what we believe, but we don't believe that. Now, the only thing that we actually agree to is that Jesus Christ started one church, not dozens of churches, that there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. There is one doctrine, and there is one polity, and that one Lord, one faith, and one baptism is found throughout the centuries, and the name under which it goes does not make a difference. And we'll see that a little bit later on, that the name doesn't make the difference. So as we get further into history of the church, we find that one Lord, one faith, one baptism has gone by many different names and yet never compromised the truth that's found in the New Testament. Fourth idea is doctrine and practice succession. So what is it that constitutes a true church? Well, it must be the doctrine and the practice. Is that doctrine patterned after the New Testament? Can you find those doctrines in the New Testament? Now, that, that doctrine and that practice, no matter what you call it, even if you did want to call it the dog church, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the name is. It's what the church preaches from the pulpit, what the membership of the church agrees to. That has to be the doctrine of the New Testament. And without that, it can't be a true church. So what I maintain about the true church, according to these different theories, is that first of all, it must be B, that is, it must be ecclesiastical, so that we find churches that are like it in all centuries since the time of Christ. And then it must have D. It must have the right doctrine and the right practice, which in fact, if it has D, it will also have B. It'll have an ecclesiastical and baptismal succession. So a church with the right doctrine can be found in every age, and that's what perpetuity means. Does that make sense to everybody? That's what we're going to be talking about in these these next few weeks. We're going to look at the historical record of what these churches that have actually gone by many different names, what did they believe and how did they carry those same essential doctrines through the centuries so that we have them today.
Now, I know that these kinds of things raise a lot of different questions, and most of those could actually be answered by going back to the very first messages that we preached in this long series about the church, talking about the nature of church and other things. And much of those things that we talked about then will fit into this, this discussion about perpetuity. So perpetuity must be understood first. And that's what puts us in this, into, the, um, into the historical mood here to where we can look for this true church of Jesus Christ. Now, in our next lesson, what we're going to look at is the origin of churches that began after 33 AD. And there are many of those throughout history. I can't talk to you about all of them, but we can give you the major ones. We're going to talk about when they started, who they started with. And then even later than that, we're going to talk about particular doctrines that came up that caused many of those churches to begin. And then, in the course of our studies, we'll begin to look at where people who believe like Baptists have fit into all of that historical record. And we begin to chase, uh, trace them down through, down through history. So I hope, that the, I hope this is interesting to you and you'll find it to be uh, something that is helpful to you. I mean, if there's, there's one thing that you want to know, you want to know that you are in a true church. Does it hold to the doctrines of Christ? And it doesn't matter... What else it may do? It may, be, it may be the best social church in the world. It might have the most activities. It might have the happiest people and the, what looks like the most spiritual people when in fact they might not even be a true church at all. The doctrine of Jesus Christ is what determines what is a true church. And that's what we want to make sure that we have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us tonight. And as we look into uh, this particular subject, I know it's difficult for some um, people pass on church history to a great deal without ever having studied it, without ever looking into it, and just accepting claims that are made without any investigation. We don't want to do that. We want to make sure that we're looking in the right place for the right church with the right doctrines. And we know that we have to start in the New Testament. We have to start with Jesus and the apostles because the scriptures are very clear that the church is built upon them. The apostles are the foundation with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. So help us, Lord, to find that true church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707 704-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church 6298 Country Club Drive Ronert Park, California 94928 Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org